Heard of that? The ozone layer. Want to hear that? The greenhouse effect. A few years ago, just after a summit on environmental issues, U.S. News and World Report had splashed across its front cover a special report on the first global warming and how a changing climate shaped and helped to explain evolution. On the cover, they had a half-man, half-ape type person. However, if we get rid of the assumption of a hundred million year calendar and the assumption of evolution, there's something in this article that helps introduce what I want to speak to you about today regarding the flood that once covered this earth. Here's what the article said. When global warming finally came, it it struck with a vengeance. This is the first global warming. In some regions, temperatures rose several degrees in less than a century. Sea levels shot up nearly 400 feet, flooding coastal settlements and forcing people to migrate inland. Deserts spread around the world as vegetation shifted drastically in North America, Europe, and Asia. After driving many of the animals around them to near extinction, people were forced to abandon their old way of life for radically new survival strategy that resulted in widespread starvation and disease. The adoption was farming. The global warming crisis that gave rise to it happened more than 10,000 years ago. Now, they call that the first global warming, but what they were speaking of first going back from this point in time. But there's another global warming that goes back even further, according to them. Earth scientists are in the midst of a revolution in understanding how climate has changed in the past and how those changes have transformed human existence. Researchers have begun to piece together an illuminating picture of the powerful geological and astronomical forces that have conspired to change the planet's environment. Scientists have long suspected that a giant meteor collided with the Earth, sending huge clouds of climate-altering dust into the atmosphere. Scientists find that in the heyday of the dinosaurs, the world was 10 to 14 degrees warmer than it is today. Breadfruit trees grew in what is now Greenland, and dinosaurs wandered in an ice-free Antarctica. In the wake of the meteor's impact, dinosaurs vanished in massive numbers, leaving the world wide wide open for colonization by mammals. Now, I share this sort of as a teaser to this morning's message. Skip the 100 million year calendar, skip the evolutionary bias, and you have the kind of thinking that easily leads into what we want to look at briefly today. The worldwide flood mentioned in Genesis 6 to 9. I think scientists would have postulated that had it not been in the Bible. But because it's in the Bible, that means it can't be true. Well, from breadfruit trees in Greenland and dinosaurs in Antarctica to ice ages and deserts, the flood in Genesis provides a very reasonable explanation. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, and let's first review several things we're going to need to understand before we can truly appreciate the flood of Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8. So let's look at Genesis 1, and the first thing we read, a verse that I hope all of us know well, is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, there's a Hebrew word there that isn't translated in the New King James, but it should be. And you can translate that Hebrew word. It's a connective. You could translate it and or even or even the word now. And that's how I prefer to translate it. Now, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit, Hebrew word for ruah, the ruah of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament. The word firmament here has the idea of expanse. Let there be an expanse, a, a space in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And thus God made a firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and morning were the second day. This would be the immediate heaven above us, our atmosphere. Now, what is meant by the waters above the expanse or above the firmament? Waters below refer, obviously, to the primeval ocean of Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 2. Elsewhere in the scriptures, these waters and the sky below them are likened to a tent which the Lord has spread out for man to live in. In other words, when God originally created the world, He put man in a tent. Now, if you've ever been in a tent camping, and I know some people aren't into camping, but for those of you that have been in a tent, particularly a small mountain-type tent that's made of nylon, it will raise the temperature on average about 10 degrees from whatever it is outside. Furthermore, with your body inside the tent, it will create a great deal of humidity. And it will be much more humid in the tent than it is outside. Now, most tents today try to overcome that to some extent by, by basically um, uh, creating a, a breathable material. But nevertheless, there's still a lot more moisture in the tent. God created a world, a universe, or, or pardon me, a earth with a tent over it. And the tent was made of water vapor. And this water vapor allowed the sun to pass through. Water vapor is absolutely clear. It allowed the sun to pass through. It kept some protection from the ultraviolet radiation that would bombard the earth. By the way, there's still a, a water vapor over the earth. It's just not as extensive, nearly as extensive as it was at that time. But... We talk a lot about ozone, but actually the water vapor over the earth is as important or more important than ozone. Ozone is just something we're measuring at this time. As God spread this water vapor canopy out over the earth, it acted like a tent. It raised the temperature, created humidity, created a very temperate climate. Scientifically, these waters above the expanse were held in a vaporized state. A clear window through which the sun would pass its sunlight would pass, creating a greenhouse effect. The same thing we keep talking about today over the earth. From geological evidence, as well as statements made in Scripture, it is clear that the earth had a more uniform, warm climate, subtropical climate, even warmer and more lush than California, Southern California. 
without the extremes of cold and heat which we have today at the poles. There were no weather systems. You say, well, how is that? Well, there was no low pressure or high pressure area. Everything was equal, so to speak, or relatively equal. There were breezes, but there was nothing dramatic. We have these enormous low pressure areas and high pressure areas, and the wind rushes from the high pressure area into the low pressure area. We don't have, they did not have that during this period of time. There were no weather systems. Furthermore, there was no rain because this water was suspended very high. There were no particles there to, to mix with the water vapor and thus bring rain upon the earth. And therefore, everything was lush and beautiful and wonderful. Now there's much scientifically that can be support this vapor canopy. It's not something that is scientifically unreasonable because we have such a canopy today. There was just a lot more vapor content in the atmosphere above us at the time that God created this world than following the great flood of Genesis. But let's move on to the next thing, and that is... In Genesis 1, we read about the waters not only being separated by an expanse, but we read about the waters being separated from land. Verse 9 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, how did he do this? Well, first, let's look at the earth prior to the separation of the dry land and the seas. And we'll take the chart there on the earth. Now, the earth is basically, and there's a lot of debate on this, and nobody knows for sure, so I don't want to sound like this is hardcore uh, teaching, uh, but it is believed, strongly believed, that at the core of the earth you have the most dense and heaviest material. And that as you go out from the core of the earth to the crust, the material gets lighter. Now, another thing that many scientists believe is that much of the, of the inner part of the earth is liquidified. And if it's liquidified, the, the, it's very easy to see how the lighter material moves to the surface quickly. It's like if you put oil in water, where does the oil go? Many of us think, oh, well, oil would go right to the bottom. No, it goes to the top because in reality it's lighter than water. And that's why it lays on the top of the ocean when they have a big oil spill. Now, there's a principle here that I'd like just to talk to you about. And it's a principle called isostasy. And that's a principle of equal weights, and this is how it would be defined. Equilibrium in the Earth's crust, such that forces tending to alleviate land, elevate land masses, balance the forces tending to depress land masses. And this is a very important thing in the study of geophysics and geology. What's it all about? I need, a, I need somebody to help me illustrate this. And so... Uh, I get a, a nice, strong young man here. Craig, why don't you come and help me? Well, 
like to take, put both these hands, like one in this hand and one in this hand here. Okay. All right. Now, let's suppose that this, these plates represent the crust of the earth. And on one side here, we're going to put a nickel. And since they believe the core of the earth is made of nickel and iron primarily, we put the nickel down and it floats all the way to the core of the earth. Okay? And next we have the outer core, which we'll let represent copper, a penny, which some believe copper is part of the core, the outer core. We put that down and it floats on top of the nickel. And then we have the mantle, and we'll let the quarter, silver, which is lighter still than the other two materials, it drops down and it forms the mantle. Now on top of that mantle and crust, we have, at the time of this passage, Genesis, we have water. We'll let the cup represent water. And the water is equal. Water is covering the whole earth, Genesis 1-2. Now, what happens is that God moves the water here through His Spirit, working, remember the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, ready to act upon the earth, and the Spirit moves the waters, and we can assume perhaps from the word Spirit itself in Hebrew, just like in Greek, the Greek word for Spirit is pneuma, has to do with breath or wind, that perhaps the Spirit of God is moving in a wind, moving the waters that are on one part of the earth to the other part of the earth. Now, obviously water is very minuscule in terms of the weight of the iron and the nickel and the copper and the silver. But nevertheless, it has weight. And so when this shifts over to here, what happens? Craig, you want to illustrate that? That's it. Not too much, just a little bit. Because what happens is the water basin sinks down. Maybe a thousand, two thousand feet, who knows? The land masses to compensate come up. That's this principle of isostasy. They come up, and thus maybe they're up four hundred, a thousand feet above sea level. But nevertheless, this is what happens in Genesis 1.1. Now, we're going to come back to this illustration a little later, so I'll need you to come back up just a little bit. Thank you, Craig. And when we're all done, Craig, you can have that as a tip. All right. God's Spirit moves on the waters, moves the waters to one spot. The earth drops down. I mean, the seabeds drop down, collecting all the waters of the oceans at that time in the seabed, and the land masses go up. Now, keep in mind that there's a lot less water. Today, three-quarters of the earth is supposedly surrounded by water. Of The land masses are about one-quarter, three-quarters of the earth's surface is water. Maybe at this time it was reversed, because so much of the water was contained in the vapor canopy over the heavens, and, as we shall see in a moment, in aquifers underneath the earth. So, there wasn't as much water to be collected into the seabeds, pushing down as much. And so, there was less relative distance or difference between the level of the ocean and the levels of the land. Now, I think that this process, this isostatic process of balancing water and earth, seen clearly mentioned in Isaiah 40, 
where it says, God who has measured, who has measured the hollow, the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. A perfect, perfect passage speaking of that isostasy. Now, next to this, we need to add this teaching, the teaching of Genesis chapter 2. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, Moses goes back and recounts much of what happens, some of what happens in Genesis chapter 1, only from the perspective of man. It's not a new account of creation. It's simply additional material that will help us understand creation in reference to man. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and then verse 10, we read this. And I have a translation of my own here that I think helps to understand a little bit more what's being said, and it's, I think, a little more accurate in terms of the Hebrew. Now, no undesirable plant of the field was in the earth, and no cultivated grain of the field had yet grown on the earth. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist, literally, waters of the deep, went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground from all of the earth. Now a river went out of the Eden to water the garden of Eden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Now, what we're learning here is as we review this creation account, as Moses is going back and reviewing this and calling, to, calling attention to certain things, he's saying, the earth that existed in his day, keep in mind, he's writing after the flood. He's writing in our period of time. He's saying that the earth that exists today is nothing like the earth that existed before the flood. Verse 6, verse 5 emphasizes that. Verse 6 talks about a mist that refers to a hidden or root, uh, the root word means hidden or unseen waters. Underground waters from below the earth that, that seem to come up out of the earth and water the earth. In other words, rain is not forming and moving the, the rivers. It's basically huge aquifers boiling out in large springs, bringing forth water to nourish the earth. And then, of course, in verse 10, you read about the Garden of Eden. And like all the earth, it was watered by rivers coming from springs, not rain. What was the source of these springs? Apparently, fountains or enormous aquifers or reservoirs deep in the earth. Now, we know about the, the Ogawa Aquifer uh, in the mid, Midwest, the Plain States. It's very important to our groundwater supply. But these were aquifers that went beyond imagination, went deep down into the crust of the earth, containing enormous amounts of water to maintain the hydraulic cycle, so to speak. They're also mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. And if you want to look up Proverbs chapter 8, 24 to 25 sometime, that would be helpful. We're not going to take time to do it today. But back to the fountains, the enormous subterranean reservoirs. Henry Morris provides a wonderful picture, word picture, of how the whole hydraulic system probably worked. He said such subterranean reservoirs were apparently all interconnected with each other as well as with the surface seas into which the rivers drained, so that the entire complex constituted one great deep. The energy for repressurizing and recycling the waters must have come from the Earth's own subterranean heat, implanted there at creation. This entire system must have been a marvelous heat engine. 
which would have operated with wonderful effectiveness indefinitely. As long as the Earth's internal heat endured and as long as the system of reservoirs, valves, governors, and conduits maintained their structure. The details of its design were not revealed, but such a system is quite feasible hydraulically and thermodynamically. And there is no reason to question the Creator's ability to provide it for the world He had made. It's sort of like, uh, how many of you are familiar with the uh, boiler radiation system in the Midwest and in the East Coast? I know we don't use that very much out here. Oh, look at this, man. You guys have education. I mean, you hear these things cracking and creaking at night. They basically are used a lot in older apartments, older housing. But it's a, basically water circulating through a system. It's heated and then it moves to the system and provides heat for the house. Everything's fine. It's a perpetuating system as long as it doesn't spring any leaks. And then you've got problems. In other words, as long as the, when it comes to this particular heat energy and the waters that, the, that are under the earth at the time of creation... As long as the heat energy source remained constant, keeping the pressure on but not overbearing, and the system uh, was all properly working, and there were no leaks, everything was okay. Now, taking all these things into account, we could say that the early earth before the flood was an idyllic place. It was warm, warmer than our climate here. It was lush. It was teeming with life. It had an abundance of food. And what's more, it was idyllic, not only in Eden, but all over the earth. All the pole, even the poles, the north and south poles, and the equator. Because of the vapor canopy, everything was fairly even. A virtual greenhouse of beauty and life and provision everywhere. No violent weather. In fact... No need for a weather report at all. It's sort of like living in Southern California. My wife loves to watch the weather. I'm thinking, what are you watching the weather for? It'll either be 75 and sunny and beautiful tomorrow, or it'll be 76 and sunny and beautiful. You know, what's the point? And that's the way it would have been at this time, only even more so. No volcanic eruptions, no earthquakes, which we experienced this morning. The whole system ran smoothly, just like clockwork. That's the way God designed it. Until man's sin and man's wickedness became so evil continually that God said, I can't bear this any longer. I'm not going to endure another day, another year, with man's sin wrecking havoc upon my creation. And so he purposed to bring a worldwide flood of waters over all the earth to destroy all flesh. The story of just how he did this begins in chapter 7 of Genesis, verses 11 and 12. This is what we read. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains on that day, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Literally, all the fountains of the, of the great deep broke up. What caused this? I'm not sure. Possibly God just turned up the heat. And when you turn up the heat, what happens on water? It begins to boil. And it explodes. And the whole thing came apart. Volcanic explosions occurred everywhere. 
water, steam, molten rock, blasting off into the air, making Mount St. Helens look like a Sunday picnic, releasing enormous quantities of volcanic dust and spray into the air. Now, what happens when you release enormous quantities of dust and material into the air? What does rain need in order to come down as rain? It needs something to crystallize around. It needs a particle of dust. And so, basically, in breaking up the deep, blasting it into the air, that precipitated then the downfall of the rain. And it came down in sheets. I remember we've had some minor flooding here in some of the days, even last winter. It just seemed like it was just coming down in sheets. We could, if you were living in this period of time, you couldn't have even seen out the door of your home. It would have been coming down so hard. It says the windows of heaven opened up and poured down torrential sheets of rain in reality. Notice all this happened on that day. This process began and it continued for 40 days and 40 nights. Enormous quantities of water came up from the fountains below and came down from the heavens above in sheets. This was no mild rainstorm. It was no severe rainstorm. It was catastrophic. We read about the continuing story in verse 17 of chapter 7. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the water. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed, third time the word prevailed is used, prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man and all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died, so he destroyed all living things that were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The word prevail in the Old Testament was a warrior term. A warrior who rises up and defeats his enemy. And what it's saying here is the waters prevailed, first of all, they prevailed greatly on the earth. They increased on the earth. In fact, they prevailed exceedingly on the earth, we're told, over the high hills under the whole heaven. And then lastly, we're told they prevailed in such a way that they actually covered the highest mountains. And we don't know how high the mountains were in those days. But nevertheless, it prevailed over those mountains. Now, it is at this point that most of us shut our Bibles and our minds and we say, no way. Some evangelical Bible-believing Christians try to save us from embarrassment and they propose a local flood. But in reality, I think that embarrasses them, their own thinking and certainly doesn't honor the Word of God, which is clearly, clearly talking about a flood that's worldwide. It's possible for water to cover miles. Is it? Let's ask this. The, the idea, the problem that people have is the flood covering mountains that are five miles high, like Mount Everest. Is it possible for water to cover mountains five miles high? 
Do you realize that right now as we're sitting here, water is actually covering mountains that are five miles high? Do you realize that in the Pacific Basin, in the western part of it, there's a trough that goes down 36,000 feet and that the mountain that's rising out of that is underwater? And that there's a whole chain of mountains and a few of those stick up as little islands and atolls and... And one of the most famous of all of these large mountains is Mauna Loa. And we think, oh, it's only 14,000 feet above sea level. But we forgot the other five miles that go down. Or three miles that go down into the ocean. First of all, it's not impossible for water to cover mountains five miles high. So how did the flood in Genesis end up covering all the mountains? First, the relative difference between the bottom of the ocean and the top of the mountains before the flood on earth was not as great, likely I should say, not as great as today because so much pre-flood water was suspended above the earth. Remember the principle of a asostasy. There wasn't as much weight on the ocean basins, therefore forcing the land masses up as there was after the flood when all the water was dumped on the oceans. Second, as the waters increased on the earth, what would have happened to the earth? You have a return to the condition of Genesis 1-2, where you have the waters on the earth surrounding the whole earth and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And it stayed like that for 140 days, altogether beyond the 40 initial days of flooding. So now what? And we come to verse 8. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. Chapter 8, I should say, verse 1. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Now, the word for wind is ruah. Spirit, wind, one and the same in this particular instance, I believe. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Today, that mountain is 14,000 feet high. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Finally, the tops of the mountains are now seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then jump down to verse 13. And in between is the story of the doves and so forth. But down to verse 13 it says, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, this is of Noah's life, that the waters were dried up from the, from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry, and in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Boy, we get into details. This doesn't sound like any fairy tale to me. The process is now one in which the waters were going and returning to the oceans from which many of them had come. And now, where they all belonged. Psalm 104 records this. It says, You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with, a, with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. 
So what happened is the waters returned to the ocean. Again, we have the principle of isostasy. Only this time, much more water. The water above as well as the water on earth. Let's come back, if you would, Craig. See if we can illustrate this a little bit more. Okay. Now, this was the condition before the flood. You had the waters, a certain number of waters, that, uh, that were on the earth in the ocean basins, pressing down, forcing the land mass up somewhat. We don't know how much, but how somewhat. So this is up a little higher than this, okay, because of the isostasy principle. Now what happens next is we have the flood, and the waters come back like that. And they, they are equal over the earth, and I'm sure there was some leveling of the land mass, although since it was a short time, perhaps not as much as we would think. And then what happens at the end is the Spirit of God, through the wind, moves the waters just as he did earlier in the days of creation. He moves the waters back into the ocean basin. Only now we've got a lot more water on the earth. Because all the waters from the heavens came down and they're on the earth now too. And so the Spirit of God is not just moving what was there before. He's moving almost double the amount, let's say, for purpose of illustration. Now what happens you get a lot more relief between the land masses and the ocean basin, which is what we have today. You've got ocean basins dropping five miles down. You've got land masses going five miles up. Isn't that interesting that there's a somewhat of a parallel basin there? So that's the point that we're trying to make here, is that this, the dramatic elevations that we see today were probably formed after the flood, not before it. I don't believe, personally, that the elevations of the earth before the flood were that great. I have no idea what they were. Maybe 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet. I have no idea. But now, today, we see Mount Everest. We see Mount Ararat, which came up 14,000 feet. And who knows what it was before that? We don't know. But nevertheless, more relief. So hopefully that explains it. You keep the tip there, brother. Thank you. Now, likewise, earth rose up higher and higher. Some mountain ranges, because of faulting and fracturing and buckling, reached heights of several miles. The Grand Tetons uh, is regarded as what they call a, a young fault. But in reality, I think that it would be more logical to see that as a uplift from the flood, or perhaps after the flood as the earth continued to try to reach equilibrium, and things were buckling and faulting. But how did God get to the waters, the waters to go back into the ocean? Again, we come back to the Spirit of God moving on the waters. Blowing on the waters, if you will, causing a wind to push those waters. And remember, just as you get the weight, just shift it a little bit into the ocean basin. It doesn't have to be much. Just a little bit. The principle of isosity begins to take over because they begin to drop and the land masses begin to go up. And as they begin to go up, more and more water keeps shifting into the ocean basin. And so you keep having this until there's some equilibrium is reached. That's where we are. Now the question I know that's going to come up is, well, Arch, I can see what you're saying is clearly what the Bible has said. But I guess I have to say I doubt the Bible. And doubt what the Bible says here. After all, the Bible is not a textbook of science. It's a book for the spirit of man. 
course, I always believe that if I can't trust it in matters of science, why should I believe it when it tells me how to live? Where's the evidence, however, beyond the Bible for these things? Can an intelligent man or woman truly go against the prevailing scientific opinion that the earth that we live on has continued along its merry way for millions, billions of years, and only in the case of millions and billions of years have we come to see the kind of magnitude changes that we've been talking about here in this flood story. Is there really any substantial proof for what the Bible is teaching? Last week, several of us took a float trip down the Colorado River, as you know, and you prayed for us, and we appreciate that. I invite you to float with me, and we don't have the 15 minutes that I plan to have uh, for the video, so we're just going to bypass it, and I'm going to give you a summation of the visual that, uh, that we learned. I want to invite you to float down the Colorado River with us as we went about learning about the evidence Evidence beyond the Bible for the very things that we've talked about this morning. Things that point clearly to a worldwide flood. First of all, as we went down, the first thing I noticed, I remember the first day we were out there, and he picked up a rock and he said, here's a brachiopod. I said, what? Looks like a stone to me. And I, you know, I got my bifocals on. And I said, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a, a brachiopod. He says, well, that occurs... Only, that is a marine organism that only occurs in the ocean. And we went on and there's other organisms and more organisms and more. It's just like the whole place, the Grand Canyon, is just full of marine organisms and all these strata that you see laying there. Now what that tells you is that there was the ocean, not just the inland lake as evolutionists would like us to believe, but the ocean itself covered this continent at one time. Secondly, fossilized marine life indicate rapid burial. They did not settle gradually to the bottom of an ancient sea, as evolutionists postulate, and there become fossilized. In order to become a fossil, there needs to be some basic rapid burial. But even beyond that, you can see the evidence of the flood because the burial was so rapid that it caught them in unbelievable positions, trying to scurry away from the waters. In this one place we went called Nautiloid Canyon, and that would have been on the video, but in this one place we went to called Nautiloid Canyon, there were these nautiloids. And these are basically marine organisms that would be somewhat shaped like, a, like, a, like this pin, uh, babies, and then they would get larger. And we would see the, the basically the evidence in the rock of their shell. And then we came over to this one place, and there was this circle like this. And I said, what's that? And he said, that's a nautiloid like this. Now keep in mind, nautiloids are supposed to swim along this way. So if they were just buried gradually, there would be a tendency for them then to just be buried like this. But there were a lot of them that are buried like this, standing straight up. That's not the way they move. That implies very rapid, very rapid and violent burial in keeping with the flood. Thirdly, you look at the Grand Canyon. I'm sure most of you stood on the edge of the South Rim or the North Rim and you've looked out and you see the layer on layer on layer on layer on layer. What is all that? That's all sedimentary rock. What's sedimentary rock? That's rock 
that basically comes from water. And that material is hydraulically sorted, settled at the bottom, and becomes a layer. It clearly points to the fact that massive amounts of water and hydraulic sorting of materials that make up these strata, sandstone and limestone, were being inundated by a flood of major proportions. All those strata say one thing, flood. Now, geologists say, well, that's a, an ancient lake that flooded or that was there for a period of time. Now, because there's just too much there in the way of material for that just to come and go over a period of time. Furthermore, there are no signs, and this is one of the best proofs you can look at. Next time you go to the Grand Canyon, you look at the strata, and you'll notice that the strata are almost even. There's no uh, jaggedness between the strata. They're smooth. Now, if they were there for millions of years, as geologists postulate, there should be little canyons and all that cut into each strata. They should be rugged and jagged, like a, a pair of sewing shears that have those serrated edges. But that's not the way it is. It's smooth, implying very quickly that there was no time for erosion to take place between each layer. Those strata were laid down very quickly, relatively quickly at the same time. Thirdly, as you go through the canyon, it's a wild place. There's all kinds of exceptions to the rules. you got layers that were like this in one place, and then they're turned upside down. You have inversions, you have intrusions, you have omissions, layers that aren't even there, and that really bugs the, the, the evolutionist. And they wonder where, they, where it went, and they call it the great nonconformity. Like, oh, there's something missing here, I wonder where that went. Well, a flood of worldwide proportions can explain why in some parts... There are missing things. Perhaps the water was dammed up and washed away a huge segment of it. And lastly, as you go through the canyon, you see the rapid erosion into great canyons like the Grand Canyon indicate soft material. I mean, a canyon that big is cut basically by one of two things. Either material was soft at the time or it took enormous, enormous force. Not some river trickling off a little piece of uh, sand pebble or a little even a boulder every now and then. But something of major force, or the material itself was soft, and or both, occurred. Which would be very much in keeping with the flood. Which as the waters poured off the earth, into the ocean basin... Obviously, they cut great canyons. Next time you, you know, have a sandbox with your children, just take a bucket and just all of a sudden cut the bottom out of it and see what happens. It will shape, and particularly if the sand is wet or the mud is wet, it will shape canyons. And they will be layered and so forth. These are the evidences that I find that go beyond the Bible. You cannot travel through that Grand Canyon without being aware that something here has happened dramatically. The Grand Canyon testifies, in my opinion, to the, te to the accuracy and the integrity of the Scriptures. But it also testifies to something else. And all of us, as we sat around the last night talking about what this trip had meant to us and what we'd learned from it, several people, including myself, 
spoke up and said, it testifies of judgment and death. Almost everything in this canyon seems to stand in opposition to life. The fossils, the massive layers of rock, the contorted intrusions, the lack of vegetation, the scarcity of animal life, even the relentless wind and blowing of sand. This is a canyon of death, except for one thing. A river. A river that is fed by beautiful rivers and streams and springs from above. Those springs and streams and, and rivers beg to be explored, and we explored them, and they're gorgeous. Like tropical paradise. It's like the road from Hana to, uh, to Lahaina in Maui. There's just so many beautiful little gorges and canyons with waterfalls and swimming holes and the whole shebang. We were all acting like kids, 10 years old, and swimming in swimming holes and jumping off rocks and doing all kinds of stupid things. A river that goes crashing over rocks, creating some of the largest and most exciting rapids in the world. 110 rapids that we went over in the course of the week. A river that sustains lush vegetation at its edges. I mean, there's no vegetation up in the mountains to speak of. I mean, in the sedimentary rock formations, but there's plenty of it along the, the, the sides of the river. And a river that provides life-giving water for animals. There's animals in the Grand Canyon, but they, they stay fairly close to the river because that's where the life is. And you know something else? The Colorado River is sustaining life all the way to California. In fact, much of the water that we use and drink comes from the Colorado River, at least some of it. It's sustaining Phoenix. It's sustaining, sustaining life for people in the southwestern United States. In one sense, the Grand Canyon is not a pleasant place to visit. It's stark and it's haunting. A monument to death and judgment. But when you're on the river, it's a place that can be endured, even enjoyed beyond our wildest expectations. Everybody said they had a wonderful trip. But what made the trip wasn't crawling around on those rocks. It was the river that made the trip. The message of the Grand Canyon seems clear. God judges sin and evil. And friends, death is all around us today. People die. Friends die. We die. But God has provided a river. He called it living water. His son called it living water to a woman at, whose life was just parched with sin and who was so unhappy with her life. And he brought her to a place where she understood what this living water was and who it was who offered it. And she asked for it and she received it. It's the same water that's available to all of us. It's called eternal life in the New Testament. Eternal life. And Jesus said, truly, truly, here's something you can truly count on. He who believes in me has everlasting life. It's ours. if we believe in Jesus. Don't get caught in the judgment of God like those Nautiloids. Don't get caught standing up or laying down 
by the judgment of God that will come upon this earth when people are saying peace and safety and everything's oh hunky dory. Boom, it happens. Believe in Jesus and enjoy life. Life forever. Life full of potential that will never end. Our gracious God and Father, I pray that you would take something of what we.